0: Brought to you by Penguin.
1: She had a work-life balance that was very, very tricky. The only difference was that, you know, if her work went wrong, she was quite liable to be murdered.
0: Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin Podcast. This is the place where we explore the creative starting point of our guests through a collection of objects that they have chosen. I'm Nihal Arthanaike, talking to you today from home. Where else? So there may be some background noises going on. My guest today is an author, historian, columnist and associate editor at The Times. In 2019, his book, The Spy and the Traitor, was the number one Sunday Times bestseller. And his new book... Agent Sonia, Lover, Mother, Soldier, Spy, came out this month. It is the truly extraordinary story of the greatest female spy of the 20th century. And today, Ben is in London. Hello, Ben McIntyre. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's great to have you here. Now, you've got with you some objects which have uh, inspired your creative process. I'm looking forward to finding out about a helmet and a pipe. Um, (laughs) But first you don't often hear about female spies because i guess history tends to be written by men doesn't it
1: history tends to be written by men and espionage tends to be carried out by men as you know there are lots of different sorts of spy and there were plenty in the 20th century there were lots of women who acted as agents who were couriers who were involved in the espionage game but Agent Sonia is different in this respect in that she was a trained intelligence officer. She was a pro. She, she went into it as a kind of career, if you like. And those are hen's teeth in this world. They they, they practically don't exist. I mean, there were very few women recruited into British intelligence until really into the, the latter half of the last century. And Ursula's life, Ursula Kaczynski, spans pretty much the whole of the 20th century. She was four when the Bolshevik revolution took place and something like 92 when the Berlin Wall came down. So she spans the whole of communism, but she was a spy, a proper, highly trained, highly technically proficient intelligence officer for the Soviet Military Intelligence Service for most of that period. So she's pretty exceptional.
0: You know, I've interviewed so many people who've wrote about their families and their parents who come from a similar generation. And women were often stifled, their creativity, their intelligence was sidelined by society and conventions how did she manage to overcome that kind of inbuilt patriarchal prejudice that existed?
1: Well I mean if you think that British intelligence uh, was sexist in the last century that was nothing compared (laughs) to the Soviet intelligence service which really did not have I mean virtually any women at all but the thing about Sonia, to give her a code name, was that she turned her gender into her greatest weapon because she was a sort of apparently a perfectly ordinary housewife. The men around her completely ignored her and she was able to get away with what she did for, for a very, very long time because, in a way, being a woman gave her the perfect cover, the perfect disguise. There are these extraordinary documents in the MI5 files which say, literally it can't possibly be Mrs Burton because she's a mother, so we'll have to look elsewhere. I mean, that was as ingrained as it got, and I think just as other spies used class and other ways to hide, Ursula used gender, and she she was no feminist, but she managed to work out very early on that she could hide in broad daylight because she was a woman.
0: Mm. So, the conventions of the age were part of her armoury.
1: Yeah, she sort of turned the conventions in a way on their head, um, and it's with dotting ahead in the story here. But interestingly, the only person in MI5 who really realised that Ursula was a threat and, and, and suspected what she was up to was a woman. She was virtually the only woman. She was the only woman in the, in the anti-communist section of MI5. She went by the unimprovable name of Millicent Baggett. And she was, a, um, she, she, she was the one who said, this, this woman is dangerous and we need to get on to her. And she was completely ignored. So if you like, the chauvinism worked for 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 Sonia in both ways.
0: She picked the wrong profession to to age in, and yet she lived into her nineties, didn't she
1: absolutely i mean and and she lived at least four or five different lives within that span. I mean she had at least four different code names, but more than that she, she continually reinvented herself. It's one of the things that really successful intelligence agents manage to do is they think themselves into a new role, and she did it time and time again, and that another, is, is another reason why she managed to survive and evade capture for so long. I mean, she evaded the Chinese Nationalist Security Service, she evaded the Japanese Kempeitai, the secret police, she evaded the Gestapo, uh, she evaded Swiss security intelligence, and she evaded MI5 and MI6 for decades. And the FBI, I think you missed out. And the well. FBI, although well, the yeah. FBI was slightly incompetent. So they, they never really, <laughs> they, at that point, they hadn't quite worked her out either. So yeah, no, she managed to slip through all of them.
0: What else did she have in her armoury, Ben, to be able to to stay one step ahead of all of these organisations?
1: She was extremely bright, very frustrated in lots of ways. Again, the conventions of the age, she didn't go to university, although she was highly intelligent and should have done so. But she channelled her energies into what is in lots of ways a kind of intellectual game. She was also highly imaginative. That's something you really need in a spy armoury because you are trying to think yourself into a new role. You're trying to imagine what other people think. And she was a writer from very early in her life. She, she had a sort of very vivid imagination. She was a very broad reader. She was also pretty nerveless i mean she had an extraordinary raw courage that kind of propelled her through even though that courage not only put her in danger but put her family in danger i mean it's something that male spies and this is a this is a big generalization but but given the the, the time she was a mother and she knew that what she was doing was not only imperiling herself but her children now some will have trouble with that it's what makes ursula i think such an interesting character is that she juggled And and, and the sort of twin demands of her ideology and her profession and her espionage on one hand... And the responsibilities of being a mother, being a wife, trying to keep a household running. So it's in some ways, it's rather a modern dilemma that she was really she had a kind of she had a work life balance that was very, very tricky. The only difference was that, you know, if her work went wrong, she was quite liable to be murdered or executed. So, you know, the stakes couldn't have been higher, really. So but so she was she was she was extraordinarily brave. And I think she was also very loyal. She managed to inspire in others a kind of loyalty towards her that in a very treacherous game is pretty rare. So at the height of the Stalinist purges, you know, there she is, she's in the middle of the the sort of Soviet intelligence machine, which was one of the targets of Stalin's purges. She yet managed to survive it, at a time when most of her close friends and colleagues were being wiped out by Stalin's executioners. And, and part of that, I think, is that she had this, this ability to get people to sort of stand by her. And that's, again, pretty rare in this game. And what was it that kept her
0: allied to the communist cause, even when Stalin's
1: excesses and his barbarity was apparent to her? To understand someone like Ursula Kaczynski, you really have to put her in context. She she was the child of a, a fairly wealthy German-Jewish family in Berlin. She was brought up in left-wing circles. Her father was a left-wing academic. Her mother was a painter. So, And she grew up in the Weimar Republic, that interwar period um, in Germany, when utter chaos was beginning to reign in Germany, that the Nazis were rising on, on the one hand, and the communists were seen by many, including Ursula and her family, as being the only defence, really, against the rise of fascism. We often forget this, but there was a tremendous pitched battles were taking place in the streets of German cities between the extreme right and the extreme left. And for Ursula, as for many in that period, including many in Britain, particularly during the Spanish Civil War, when the two sides clashed so ferociously in in the Spanish peninsula, Really for many it was it was it was a logical place to go for her communism was the only way to combat this horror that was as, as time went on was not only destroying the country that she loved Germany but that was actually wiping out her people that was systematically trying to kill her and her family so for her it was not a difficult ideological choice now the question you raise is why did she stick with it mm. when it had become clear to her that the experiment the whole idea of the of the of the revolution was really not going to work now i think that only really came to her in much later life she wrote she writes very movingly about this about the internal struggles that she felt during the 1930s when clearly the whole stalinist story was becoming brutal and and self-destructive to an unbelievable degree and she stuck with it. she said she didn't really know what was going on and yet you can tell there is a queasiness to the way that she describes it. And again, I think this makes her, she's not a simple ideological creature, Ursula. And certainly at the end of her life, she was deeply disillusioned. Uh, When the Berlin Wall came down, although she remained a communist right to the end, she became rather a subtle communist in lots of ways. She began to see that there was a way of, of presenting socialism that 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 wasn't this sort of totalitarian system. And so she evolves. I mean, her story is the evolution of communism, from its sort of clear and crystal ideological beginnings to its kind of chaotic collapse after the fall of the Soviet Union. So you can, in a way, you can trace the uncertainties of communism through Ursula herself. And unlike most spies who tend to make up their pasts or falsify them, she's extremely honest about this in, in her private writings, in the in the in the many, many um, private papers that I managed to find during the course of the research for this, thanks to her, her family who gave me access to everything, you can see the internal struggle that she's going through.
0: Um, can you describe in words the rush you get when you are handed documents that you know outside of a very small circle of people nobody else has seen? And you're accessing that information, and you're getting to really understand who this human being is.
1: Well, it's one of the great ironies, I suppose, and pleasures of writing about espionage is that although it is deeply secret at the time, spies love to talk about their their worlds. <laughs> they, as I say, are very imaginative <laughs> people, and, and I've found it, in my experience, spies are some of the most indiscreet people you'll ever <laughs> meet, particularly when they're in retirement. Um, I, of course, I never got to meet Ursula. So there were two essential sources here. One were one was the the, the sort of private papers that she, that she wrote, and she wrote all her life. She also wrote a large number of books. When she was in, at the end of her life in East Germany, she wrote memoirs. Well, they they were disguised as novels, really, and this was her way of getting around Stasi censorship. With she described them as fiction. The reality is that they're not fiction at all. They are they are fact. The names are disguised, but everything else in them, as her son's confirmed to me, is absolutely true. So it was her way of of kind of telling the truth without without getting caught, really. So so those were extraordinarily useful documents. And then, of course, you have the MI5 files. Now, what's remarkable about these is that they are written by and for people who never expected them to be made public. They're supposed to be secret. And so they are honest in a way that most government documents aren't. Most government documents are written by people who wish to give a certain impression, mm. um, true or false, and sometimes quite falsified to what comes after. MI5 files are different. They are written in real time by people who are handling agents on the ground and trying to work out what's going on. So you get a kind of reality in them that is quite unlike any other kind of source material. They're honest. When it goes wrong, they say in the marginalia of these, these extraordinary collection of files, they say, it's a disaster. We're going to hell in a handcart here. You don't get that in any other way. So I think the thrill of being able to see people wrestling in in kind of, as it were, in contemporaneously with what was going on, allows one, if one is very lucky... To be able to give the kind of minute by minute, hour by hour, moment by moment feeling of what actually is going on, and and that's gold dust for a, for a narrative nonfiction writer because you can really try to summon up the experiences of the people that are that are that are that are kind of living through this time. And, and Ursula, as I said, is extraordinarily sort of genuine in her admission of human frailty. You don't get that very often, but when she is at her lowest moments, and she's often she's looking back at these, when she is desperately frightened, when she knows that there's a, there's a real danger she's going to be caught and that her children will be taken away and probably, you know, sent to prison camps and murdered, you know... She, she is completely vivid in her descriptions of those moments. And there's there's nothing quite like the thrill of reading that sort of thing for the first time. Let's get to your first object, uh, Ben, which is a jar
0: of chutney, uh, not <laughs> something that you bought at a summer fair by any stretch of the imagination. Tell us where this jar of chutney comes from. This jar of
1: chutney bears the embossed cover uh, around the top of it. You know, most jars of chutney have that sort of paper thing on the top with a bit of elastic band that holds it in well (laughs) this one has the seal of the security service mi5 on it and it's some it's one of the things that they would give guest speakers when they came in uh to to speak at mi5 and i've done this many times now it's it's a great pleasure actually to do it One, one goes into mi5 headquarters and 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 gives a sort of talk to the to the to to anyone who wants to turn up, really. But but what's so fascinating, I'm always fascinated by the questions because frequently with these stories, the the audience knows a great deal more about the subject than I do. Um, And I I particularly like this jar of chutney, which, of course, I will never open and never eat, uh, because I love the idea that somewhere in the back of the MI5 building, somebody is making secret chutney. That's That's just a really cheerful thought, that somebody is turning out, chopping up the onions and getting it all brewed up, as a, you know, in a secret operation. So I cherish that. That sits on my mantelpiece and reminds me that, that there is a vein of humour that runs through all of these stories. Spies, in my experience, have a real sense of their own irony and, and the absolutely straight face with which the then Director General of MI5 handed me the official MI5 chutney at the end of a speech I gave in about 2006 will remain with me for a long time. I think we can safely say there's
0: no other spy agency in the world that would give Chutney as a present.
1: It's about as British a thing as you could possibly get, isn't it? I mean, you cannot imagine the CIA (laughs) ceremonially handing over, I don't know, I don't know what it would be there, a waffle or something. It seems completely unlikely. But as I say, it's part of the kind of self-irony exactly that comes with the job, even though what they do is deadly serious.
0: What's that energy like when you're going to give a talk to a room full of spies? And I'm of course, intrigued about the kind of questions they ask you.
1: They're remarkable in their ordinariness. I mean, yes. that's, that's well, they have the whole be, point. They, they are not, yeah. they're not James Bond characters. They are every hue, every ethnicity, every type, every age. And, and that's, in a way, one of the most cheerful things, I think. I mean, had you gone into MI5 in 1942, it would have been entirely male, upper middle class, almost all Oxbridge-educated, Uh, men of a certain class and and type. It's not like that anymore. And I find that extremely encouraging. I mean, they're very interested in their own history, which I think is fascinating too. Mm -hmm. I mean, that again is quite a recent development. The decision to declassify swathes of hitherto secret material was taken uh, during the Blair administration. And without it, I would not have been able to write any of these books. So I, I feel I've been extremely fortunate in just in the timing of that. As an organization MI5 in particular, MI6 slightly differently, but MI5, the security service, believed quite rightly, I think, that an understanding of the past was a very important way of understanding the present and the possible future. When you sit
0: down to write a book about historical figure, are you mindful throughout of its relevance to today or do you just see it in isolation as this is just a great story about people who existed in a particular time?
1: No, I mean, it's impossible really to write about uh, the Cold War and indeed the war, I think, without being aware of where we sit at the moment in terms of international relations. You know, to read, I mean, Ursula was, for example, an officer in, in what became the GRU, the Soviet Military Intelligence Agency. Now, of course it was officers of the GRU in modern times who are alleged to have, or I think we pretty much know this to be the case, who were sent to assassinate uh, Sergei Skripal in Salisbury. So there is a direct line. On the other hand, there is a great sense in which these are stories that stand alone. They're kind of human dramas, uh, I hope, that sort of in a way stand outside modern politics in some ways. I mean, Ursula's story, which starts, as I say, right at the beginning of the 20th century, takes you through her own personal odyssey, which itself is an extraordinary journey, really. Let's get
0: on to your next object. Tell us about your great uncle's pocketbook, which carries quite a story, doesn't it?
1: Well, it does. I mean, one of my earliest books was about the First World War and the horror of that Conflict will remain with us, I suspect, forever, although it's probably dimming now after a century, and perhaps rightly. But this pocketbook belonged to my great-uncle Tim, who, as an 18-year-old um, newly-minted subaltern, was sent to the Western Front. And um, on his first day at the front, he went to inspect a machine gun emplacement near Arras, and he bent down to look through the uh, the machine gun sort of hole where the machine gun poked through on the, on the edge of a sort of, of quite high embankment and clearly a German sniper on the other side had already got a bead on it because he fired a shot which hit my great-uncle who happened to carry this pocketbook in, in, the, in his breast pocket. The bullet nonetheless went, went through both of his lungs but it didn't kill him and that was thanks to the pocketbook. It did, however horrifically, the bullet continued and killed the man standing behind him. And it was one of those sort of extraordinary moments in war when one person is saved by an accident and one is killed by something equally accidental. And it's always remained with me, partly because my great uncle, who was a fairly ghoulish character in his way, liked to make me as a little boy take the, the pocketbook out of his sort of curio cabinet and put my finger <laughs> through the hole in it. Um, and it was still sort of brown and bloodstained from, from where he had narrowly uh, avoided death. And I just... it was, It's just, I think, the most extraordinary story, really. Um, he, in fact, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a funny story, but, it, but he did tell it to me in an amusing way in later life. He said, when I was recovering from my wounds in wherever it was, somewhere on the East Coast, uh, I was walking in the garden and uh, I happened to meet another fellow officer who said, uh, I'm very distraught at the moment because my best friend was killed by a bullet that passed to another officer. I realised at that moment that the body through which that officer had passed was my own. This was a tricky social moment. <laughs> I decided it would be better not to mention it, and we walked on. Again, I thought that was an extraordinary kind of British, weird, stiff upper lippery <laughs> of a sort that you wouldn't find today. I, I just sort I'm fascinated by it, because it's about the, kind of the pure sort of accidental fate of something as brutal and unpredictable as war.
0: I find... Those kinds of stories, so extraordinary. I I once had a conversation, Ben, with the permanent undersecretary at the Foreign Office and uh, it just so happened that there'd been a falling out with a, another government and uh, the ambassador of said government had been called to the Foreign Office to get a dressing down. And I asked him, I said, how do you initially show your displeasure when a, a foreign ambassador turns up for a dressing down? And he said, all, with all seriousness, he just said, well... Um, we sit them down and we don't offer them a cup of tea.
1: <laughs> God, devastating, I imagine. I know, if right? you're, you know <laughs> God, I can't believe it. I've been rather... I didn't even get a cup of tea. I, I, I was held of the president of Uzbekistan immediately. Exactly. No, I mean, it's kind of... We have the weirdest codes in this country.
0: Researching and writing the books that you have written, Ben, what does it leave you
1: believing about human nature we have a tendency to look back on the Second World War in particular, and perhaps also the Cold War, through a very clear moral prism. There's a good side and a bad side. There are winners and losers. Those on the side of virtue triumph and those on the side of wrong are defeated and destroyed. But it's not really true about how humans behave. And what I think fascinates me is that these are ways of exploring how ordinary people behave in circumstance, often appalling circumstances that are not of their making. They have no control over events. They are swept up in the kind of brutal violence of war. And some respond with extraordinary courage and heroism and some don't. And it is a way of testing what character is and how it works and sometimes good people do the wrong thing for the right reasons and sometimes people that we do not admire or respect end up being war winners because it's a it's a horrible cruel business and i suppose if if it tells if these books about sort of conflict of this sort and particularly secret conflict tell one anything it is that nobody benefits from war. And, and the idea that you somehow recover from this sort of experience as a, as a better person, that that's not what, it, what happens, I think. But yet it can bring out the most extraordinary kind of unexpected skills and abilities and, and depths to people who would not have found it otherwise. I suppose that's what interests me, is how people respond to this, in a way, ultimate test of personality. And what does it tell you about yourself? Because with
0: with this book specifically, I, I found myself asking the question, well, what would I do in this situation? Which I'm sure is a question you ask yourself.
1: What does it tell me about me? Probably that I have a, a very unhealthy interest in slightly odd people. Most of the people I write about are to some extent touched by some sort of slight madness. Now, whether that is because being a spy drives you mad or that you have to be very slightly touched to ever want to be a spy, I, I, I don't know. But these are often extraordinarily sort of picaresque characters, really. They're sort of slightly unbelievable people. I mean, Ursula's career is, is, if you wrote it as fiction, I don't think anyone would really believe it because it seems so kind of impossible and unlikely. That's the moment when I get most pleasure out of writing these books is when I think gosh, you know, that, that really, truth is not only stranger than fiction, it's also a lot more interesting. I shouldn't say that because I'm probably novelists into this, but, <laughs> but you know, uh, uh, there is nobody who is not interesting. I suppose that's the other thing is that mm. even the, the lesser characters in here have an interior life that I find particularly fascinating and trying to bring that out and trying to work out how that other people react to my main characters is, is really half the pleasure, I think.
0: Is there an inevitability in a life lived with so much subterfuge in it, infecting everything around you,
1: your personal relationships, your familial relationships? To me, there is no doubt that a life spent in secrets has an effect on you, has a a, a quite damaging effect if you cannot really tell the people that you love who you are, and what you are, and what you have, have, have done, and some of the kind of moral compromises that are inevitable in a, in a world like this. I mean, we, we are not talking about James Bond. We're not talking about people going out and killing people. But in MI6, you know, you are often, as part of the Foreign Intelligence Service, persuading people to do things that are not really in their own interests. You know, that you are trying to get them in effect to betray their own countries. Now, that, that is a very difficult burden to carry for some people. Ursula is herself a very interesting case of this. I mean, she was a devoted mother; she she adored her children, and she she you know she she would have done anything for them except her ideology came first, and that ideology required her to be intensely secretive. And I interviewed two of her two of her children, her two surviving uh, children, one of whom has sadly recently died um, in his nineties. But one of them said to me, and I was very moved by this. He said. You know, I never really thought I quite knew my mother. Mm. I never was absolutely certain that the person, because he didn't discover about her intelligence life until he was in his 40s. So it came as an extraordinary revelation to him. And he said to me, rather sadly, he said, I myself have been married, for, married and divorced four times. And he said, perhaps I never really learnt to trust anybody. And I thought that was an intensely sort of poignant thing to say and, and, and a sort of rather an extraordinary piece of self-knowledge because, of course, secrecy is also infectious. It's addictive and it's infectious. And, and while it seems very attractive from the outside, a life lived in secrets is, is a kind of covert life. And I think Ursula herself in a way suffered from this. And I think it's one of the reasons why in later life she felt this impelling need to write her story Albeit as fiction, but she needed she needed to say who she was and what had happened to her because she wanted, in the end, to shed some of the secrecy.
0: Next object, Ben, your father's pipe.
1: Well, my father was was an academic and a writer, and when he died, he left a succession of these extraordinarily sort of smelly pipes, and I, I I keep one on my desk because. I remember him vividly, sort of swathed in acrid brown smoke. He smoked all the time when he was when he was working, and it was part of his industry and part of his life. And he was a historian. Um, he was a much more scholarly and academic historian than I am. Um, but he, 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 he really sort of planted the seed in me that the past is not only um, important and interesting, but it's also extraordinarily good fun. He was a man with a, with a brilliant sense of humour and a great twinkle, and I, I have a vivid memory of him behind his pipe, behind the smoke, just sort of giggling about something new that he'd discovered about the past, and that was a real... So in a way, it's, um, it's, a, it's just a little inspiration for me of, of, of my dad.
0: Other than your own subject matter... Ben, what are the books that excite you? What are you drawn to?
1: Well, having said that, I think that truth is stranger than fiction. I'm I'm a great devourer of fiction. Nonetheless, I, I, I love the imaginative worlds, not just of, you know, people like John le Carre, who's, who's the master of this, of creating a kind of a a world that you can enter into. I, I think those authors that are able to do that, that's an astonishing talent. There are very few actually. I mean, David Cornwall, John Le Carre is one of them, P.G. Woodhouse is another, um, Ian Fleming is another, Somerset Maugham is another. To be able to create a complete, believable universe and draw people into it, th- those are the kind of books that I get completely lost in. Hilary Mantel is another brilliant example. That's the kind of literature that I love.
0: I was speaking to Ruth Jones um, and she, she <laughs> I was asking her about films and quite surprisingly to me, she said that she's drawn to Planet of the Apes movies. Now, people may look at your canon of writing and say, well, this guy's going to be all over, the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spies and the, and the James Bonds when he goes to the cinema or, or he's on a plane and he goes,
1: what films do you choose? Look, I love all those things and I'm first in line for the next Bond movie, so you'd have to sort of fight <laughs> me off with a baseball bat, but I... um. <laughs> No, I you know I love all of those, but no, so I'm pretty sort of I'm pretty sort of Catholic in my tastes of, of those sort of things. I'm not a great fan of the Marvel movies, but I'll kind of watch pretty much anything else. I mean, there is a sort of cinematic element to a lot of my writing, I guess, and that's not particularly intentional, I don't think. But but I suppose I am conscious of the movement of scenes and the, and the kind of st- the sort of the structure of, of of movies and television because I do think that is in a way that is the grammar that we are. We are very used to, and it lends itself very well to a certain sort of non-fiction writing. So I, I try to keep up with my with my cinema as much as I can.
0: Being an author is a solitary profession, isn't it? I mean, you isolate yourself away from the world. Largely, all the, most of the authors that I interview seem solitary. Do you rail against that? Can you go and sit in a
1: cafe and put yeah, out no, your laptop? no, I can definitely do that. In fact, I do, I do that quite regularly. I suppose my sort of writing is a little less solitary than some because... You know, if I'm lucky, there are still living witnesses around um, who can I can interview. So there is, a, as it were, a slightly more journalistic element to some of my writing. I mean, for example, the book I wrote about Oleg Gordievsky, um, a KGB spy who worked for MI6 undercover for, for many years. All the MI6 officers who had run him are still alive. So I was able to interview all of them. And that was, well, it was both a way of of not being solitary, but it was also a way of kind of, Getting lots and lots of different voices into one's story, and being able to kind of really try and work out exactly what happened by talking to as many living witnesses as I could find. So, so mine is slightly less solitary than most, I, I think. I, I do manage to get out, and also I spend a lot of time in archives. Um, many of them public archives, particularly the national archives, and and those, those they're rather convivial places, actually. I mean, you get you get you you, you work out who is who is playing the same. Furrow as you are and and there's a sort of camaraderie that goes with that so I suppose I, I, I I'm lucky enough not to have to sit in a darkened room on my own for, for too long at a time because obviously I would go completely bonkers is it hard to manipulate and exploit
0: people or is it actually quite straightforward to do that and I'm not talking about you personally <laughs> yeah. but as a spy does it does does actually human nature quite easily exploited? I
1: think there is it's a it's a good question I mean it is an exploitative business there's no doubt about that I mean you you have to you have to get people to trust you who perhaps shouldn't trust you and you may do things with their secrets that are not um, in their interest. They may be in the wider interests of whatever ideology or country you are serving. But yes, it does involve an element of exploitation. But there is also an element of honour in it, which I think is equally important, because I've never come across a spymaster or indeed a spy who didn't feel that there was a particular bond between between he or her and the person that they were running. The the relationship between agent and agent-runner is absolutely critical. And it does involve a level of human trust and human interaction that, at its best, can be extremely profound. It can also be very moving. But, I mean, in the modern age, we imagine, really, that sort of espionage is all about digital interception, that it's all about signals intelligence, really, what used to be called signals intelligence, still is. I mean, where you are intercepting texts and emails and so on, so it's all done online. That is true to a huge extent, but it is still also at a human level, about looking somebody in the eye and trying to work out whether you can trust them. And that's the kind of... That is the central core of what these stories are all about. And again, it's a fascinating thing to explore. It is exploitative at its core, but it also has an emotional human element um, that is absolutely fascinating. And trying to work out where the one ends and the other begins is, is kind of the warp and weft of what these stories are about.
0: Brilliant. Now, your final object is a Second World War pilot's helmet with goggles.
1: I'm very proud of this one. This was, this was given to me by my mother. I mean, it's a, it's a lovely thing. It's a leather tight-fitting cap of, of the type that parachutists and Spitfire pilots and so on wore when they when they went into battle. And it's it's actually a, a, a really rather beautiful object, apart from anything else. The leather is beautifully worn and has this lovely pattern. And I have no idea of its history. I have no idea where the story came from but I, I find it rather moving in a way because those stories are extraordinary but as I say it was sort of given to me by my mother as a as a piece of mockery really because when I was filming um uh, making a documentary about Eddie Chapman who was a who was a second world war double agent who parachuted into into Britain uh, in 1942 a part of the sort of costume if you like for this documentary was that I had to wear a full parachutist's outfit uh, which was fine it was very heavy I mean it was a huge great harness and so on and we were in a a heinkel bomber uh, on the ground but it was being shaken and the, there was a wind machine outside to make it look as if it was flying which was all that was all fine but every time i put on the the helmet this tight fitting thing it's like a sort of swimming cap really but, but made of leather every time i put on, put it on the crew became hysterical with laughter because i looked exactly like one of the sperm in everything you ever wanted to know about every, about sex were afraid to ask the great woody <laughs> allen film where they're all lining up um, with these sort of um sort of tight-fitting bathing caps on, and I looked absolutely, <laughs> totally ridiculous. Um, and we never, ever managed to do the, sh- the, the shot, actually, because we were all so hysterical. So in the end, I, I appear to jump out of this plane without a parachutist helmet on, and I told my mother this story and she thought it was so ridiculous that she then found one. Um, so that's, that's why I keep that.
0: <laughs> Let's now, Ben, go to a passage from your book. This is from the opening where you first introduce us to Ursula. Let's hear a clip from the audiobook now.
1: If you had visited the quaint English village of Great Rollwright in 1945, you might have spotted a thin, dark-haired and unusually elegant woman emerging from a stone farmhouse called The Furs and climbing onto her bicycle. She had three children and a husband, Len, who worked in the nearby aluminium factory. She was friendly but reserved and spoke English with a faint foreign accent. She baked excellent cakes her neighbours in the Cotswolds knew little about her. They did not know that the woman they called Mrs Burton was really Colonel Ursula Kaczynski of the Red Army, a dedicated communist, a decorated Soviet military intelligence officer, and a highly trained spy who had conducted espionage operations in China, Poland, and Switzerland before coming to Britain on Moscow's orders. They did not know that her three children each had a different father, nor that Len Burton was also a secret agent. They were unaware that she was a German Jew, a fanatical opponent of Nazism who had spied against the fascists during the Second World War and was now spying on Britain and America in the New Cold War. They did not know that in the outdoor privy behind the furs, Mrs Burton had constructed a powerful radio transmitter tuned to Soviet intelligence headquarters in Moscow. The villagers of Great Rollwright did not know that in her last mission of the war, Mrs. Burton had infiltrated communist spies into a top-secret American operation parachuting anti-Nazi agents into the dying Third Reich. These good Germans were supposedly spying for America. In reality, they were working for Colonel Kaczynski of Great Rollwright. That was
0: Agent Sonia, written and read by my guest today, Ben McIntyre. It is available to buy and download now. There is a link in the programme notes of this episode. And please share this podcast with anyone and everyone. Subscribe, even rate us if you can. That would be very nice indeed. Thank you. and much appreciated. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. So, um, with Ursula, is she on the wrong side to be turned into a movie?
1: Well, the wrong side. You see, this is what makes her, to me, so fascinating, is because for the first half of her espionage career, Ursula is, for want of a better way of putting it, on our side. She is a ferocious anti-Nazi campaigner. You know, she is absolutely dedicated to destroying fascism. And that is what she devotes herself to. You know, she wants to save Germany, she wants to destroy Hitler, and anything she can do to further that cause, and she does it through the communist cause, that's what she's about. So we are rooting for her. You know, she's um, particularly when, you know, um, Britain and America and the Soviet Union are allied against the Nazis. That's the kind of high point when Ursula is doing really holy work, if you like. And then, of course, history pivots. And the Cold War begins... And our former ally, our I'm speaking our as as sort of the Western powers, our former ally becomes our enemy. And Ursula is then, again, if you like, spying against us. She's gathering the secrets of the atomic weapons program. She's effectively stealing them from the British to give to the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union detonates the bomb in 1949, that is partly down to Agent Sonia. You know, that is her work. So, she would argue that and did argue that, in fact, by being able to pass these these terrifying secrets on to, to the Soviet Union, she was able to help maintain the balance of power. Um, she didn't want a world in which America was the only atomic uh, superpower. And, who, you know, perhaps that's a valid argument. I mean, that is one to be debated. Did she make help make the world a bit safer? That's a that's a perfectly reasonable and and respectable argument. So is she on the wrong side? I think if you if you look at history through a moral prism then 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 yes you're going to start coming down with moral judgments but but what I found this story so fascinating really was that it sort of it's about the evolution of communism itself from a kind of pure ideological um crusade if you like to something broken and brutal and tattered and destroyed and that, that did not work. And and Ursula's own story tells that story. So I hope it will work on screen. In fact, there is going to be a, a TV series made out of it. It's a long life. It's a complicated life. She herself is not a simple one-dimensional wartime heroine. But I think the modern audience is sophisticated. I think we are. we are... Conscious enough of the complexity of life and the, and the the different strands and threads of history to be able to follow a story in which yes she you know she starts as our friend and she ends as our enemy, but and, and, but for her, there was no conflict in that, and she was quite patriotic about Britain. she became a British citizen, she believed in, in certain liberal western values, she felt she was doing Britain a service by taking what information you could get secretly and passing it to the Soviet Union.
0: It would be remiss of me not to ask what's next. I mean, is there a treasure trove of uh, these spies that exist that that are out there? Well, it's a gift that keeps on
1: giving. I mean, I'm thrilled to say that that MI5 (laughs) continues to release, uh, declassify its material. And one of the extraordinary things about about this declassification is that it it, it is a 50-year rule. After 50 years, they can release unless it is thought to be impinging on national security, but that doesn't mean they only release the things that reflect well on MI5. on the contrary, the, you know, they are quite prepared to stand up to their mistakes as well. And that makes those releases absolutely fascinating. Actually, for my next book, I'm going to make a slight departure away from the world of espionage, although only slight. I'm going to write the history of cold hits the wartime prison camp, which is a story, again, that is very fabled in our national imagination. You know, we have those of us that grew up in the 1970s on the BBC um, series about cold It's have a particular idea of what that camp was like. It was jolly officers all, you know, trying to build gliders in the, in the attics in order to, to beat the, the wretched Hun. The truth of Colditz was very different from that. I mean, it was a very complicated, morally fraught place. I want to demystify Colditz a bit. I mean, to take us back to the beginning of, uh, of what we were talking about, it's an enclosed space in which I can explore what ordinary people do in extraordinary situations that they have not created. And it's a fascinating backdrop for that.
0: Ben McIntyre, would look forward to that. And I'm sure every day you're camped outside headquarters uh, somewhere on the banks of the Thames with your laptop waiting for these documents to be released. So you can... That's me. Get, <laughs> That's me. <laughs> Thank you Cheers. very much for having me. Thank Cheers, you. Ben. Thank you.
1: The Sandpit by Nicholas Shakespeare John Dyer has just returned to England after years spent as a foreign correspondent in Brazil. His son's new classmates are children of the rich and powerful, spies and members of the CIA. Gathered to watch their children's weekly football match, John meets an Iranian nuclear physicist that sets him on a precarious path. Di arrived at the school gates at four o'clock on that bracing, cold February afternoon. Fed up. He'd been back in England 17 months. His research was leading down a blind alley. The Oxford weather... The conversation of parents oppressed him. On top of everything, this bullying incident with his son. It brought Brazil back. The heat, the silver foil of the sea, his years as a foreign correspondent. The audiobook edition of The Sandpit is available to download now.